If I was to ask you to think of a memorable meal, you might rack your brains for a minute. You might be thinking of all sorts of different instances where a meal were memorable. As I thought about it, most of the meals I thought about were quite sort of um, special occasions. So I thought about a time when my sister, who was 10 years older than me and was at Edinburgh University, on my 10th birthday, she came home by train overnight secretly to appear at my 10th birthday. And I can remember the breakfast I had with my sister, who I adored. I still love her, but I absolutely idolised her then. And it was just such an exciting time. I can remember the meal that we had when we got married. I can remember the meal we had when I I, I got uh, my first degree. All those kinds of nice things. They were memorable occasions. Here is a memorable meal. But I'm not sure that those who were there necessarily will have felt terribly comfortable. I don't know that they would necessarily have felt it was a celebratory meal. But here in these verses, Jesus speaks at a meal. And actually, what I'd like us to do as we look at it this morning, the the, the passage actually breaks down into into three courses. So I thought, keep the kind of meal thing going. We're going to have a three-course meal this morning. We're going to have a starter, a main course, and a dessert. Okay? The starter is kind of verses 1 to 6. The main course... It's verses 7 through 14. And the dessert is pretty hefty, so you've got to keep a bit of room. It's the rest, 15 through 24. But there are three things going on here, all in the course of this encounter with Jesus. So what's the first one? Well, the first one actually starts by setting the scene, that he was in the house of a Pharisee, a prominent Pharisee. And verse 1 sets a little bit of a tone. He was being carefully watched. Carefully watched, not simply by his host. I don't think his host was worried that he might run off with the silver. I think he was being carefully watched because they didn't really trust him. They'd already heard about him and all that he'd done, even in chapter 13, where he'd healed someone on the Sabbath. They were watching for him to trip up the experts in the law, the other Pharisees that were there, those who were of an equal standing to their host. And in the midst of this, a man is introduced who who doesn't fit in really because he's not of equal standing. He's a man that would have been considered an outcast in society because he was unwell. He had a a condition that's that's referred to as dropsy. My understanding of that is it was kind of like a a, a fluid retention, a a real, um, I think, technically called an edema, perhaps. But anyway, was taking on more and more fluid and swelling and swelling and swelling and was very sick. And for him to be there, that would not have worked with the customs of the Jewish teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They would have considered that to be unclean. But there he appears... And Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They don't answer, so he heals him. 
And then in, in verse 5, he picks up an illustration as if to try and teach them, to try and tease out the law that they understand and that they are familiar with. He pulls out a really bizarre thing to me. If one of you has a son or an ox that falls in a well, huh? But anyway, part of the law said that something like that, if it happened on the Sabbath, that was okay. You could sort that out. But to heal a man that was poorly, that was struggling, by all accounts, every time he drank something, it didn't quench his thirst, it just caused him to swell more. Well, surely that is a better thing to be doing on a Sabbath, even than saving your ox, which admittedly would have been very important. But surely the Lord's day, the day set aside by God, would be just the perfect day to extend mercy. Reaching out and restoring instead of restricting and rule-keeping. So the starter is already a little bit uncomfortable. You can imagine them sort of just fiddling around with their prawn cocktail. I'm not sure this is very palatable. As they hear this first encounter, this first opening bit of Jesus' teaching. I don't expect that they actually had the starter main course and dessert thing. Let's just keep with that for our understanding. But there, that starter was not comfortable. But actually, in it, he established his authority that he could teach. Because they had nothing to say that they could actually counter with that would be of relevance. And so he continues on to the main course. He's got them going, he's got them interested. And Jesus is observing this meal. And how those that were there were of good standing in society. And they were all jostling for position. They were all vying for influence. And this main course, there there are two bits to it. Verses 7 Uh, Sorry, verses uh, 6 to 11. And then verses 12 to 14. There are two little chunks here, but actually they work very similarly. Luke has structured them very similarly. And so we'll play them together one by one as our main course. Jesus was operating in a society where honour and status pecking order, if you like, was very significant. Where a social situation like a meal was a place to be seen and maybe gain just a little bit more social standing if you were kind of lower down. Or maintain that social standing if you were kind of higher up. It was an occasion where actually The host had offered hospitality, but actually the others would be expected to reciprocate, to offer hospitality back. You'd return the favour. And if you did a good job, maybe you'd creep up the pecking order a little bit. So in verses 7 to 11, it, it might appear at first that Jesus is giving just a bit of good moral advice to some of the people. Look, you know, don't don't assume that you'll get a good place. You know, keep it humble, and maybe you'll get promoted. There's that kind of sense of maybe just a bit of good moral teaching going on there. 
But then verse 11 kind of hits them between the eyes. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a theme that has rung out throughout Luke's Gospel. From Mary's song in chapter 1, where she recognises that, that God will bring the exalted to, 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 to become lowly, and the lowly will be exalted. It's something that we've seen even in the last chapter, where Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last. There is this sense that's repeated again, that the exalted will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. As we sang, make way, make way. He comes the broken hearts to heal, the prisoners to free. The deaf shall hear, the lame shall dance, the blind shall see. Jesus came, as he said, to bring good news to the poor, to seek release for the captive. And Jesus was beginning to teach this again here. And so he goes on into that second bit where again he's speaking to those that are assembled, but he addresses particularly the host here in verse 12 and says, you know, when you give such a a dinner, don't invite the the worthy, don't invite family and friends and rich people that, that can repay you. Invite those who haven't a hope of repaying you. You see, those he picks out, the poor, verse 13, the crippled, the lame, the blind, they were people that were on the margins of society. They were people who would have been regarded lowly. Who would that be today? Who would that be today? Because Jesus is saying, look, look out for those people who can't help themselves. And again, it's not just a moral teaching, but actually it's saying, think about it, people. What has God done for you? To those that were listening, he was kind of appealing to the fact that God had set them free from captivity that he brought them out of Egypt and and brought them to a promised land, that he had promised that they would be his people. And his generosity was unrepayable. Is that a word? Unrepayable? Sorry. They could not pay it back, his generosity. And he was saying, look, in the kingdom of God... Let's allow the generosity of God to come through. The generosity that has no expectation of return. Because look, you cannot repay the generosity you have been shown by the living God. And actually, as we come to communion this morning, that's what we remember We have been shown in this bread and this wine the undeserved 
generosity of God that we cannot repay, but we can respond to by turning to him and asking him to mould us and shape us, to give us hearts that are generous like his. And he's asking these people, please, you're good people, please, see what God has done. So if the starter was a little bit unpalatable, main course, they're probably just beginning to feel a little bit of pressure. Then there's the dessert. Verse 15 through to 24. And it's a big passage, but it actually all runs together. So please stick with us this morning because it, it needs to all come together. Because you see, verse 15 follows on from verse 14, really? So it does. But actually, it really does. Because there, in verse 14, Jesus is saying, although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He's pointing to a time in history, but a time in the future, when God will repay those who have sought his heart and sought to be like him in what they do. And one of those at the table picks up on this. And I just get a picture of him being a bit smug. I just get a picture of this bloke saying, Ah, yeah, gotcha. All right, I understand you, Jesus. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God, like me. I get the impression that it's just a little bit of a smug statement. And Jesus holds up a mirror in this next little parable. Now, some people have interpreted this next little parable to be a little bit like last week. We were talking about allegory, where we can kind of place different characters and replace them with, 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 with God, with, with other people, with ourselves. I don't think that's what's going on here. Again, it's not an allegory. Some people would interpret the master in the story as God. But that doesn't seem to sit very well, because actually, if you look at the story, God being the master, it actually puts those on the margins of society as an afterthought. Once the the, the privilege to be invited and refused, he kind of says, well, okay, let's get the others in. I don't think that's God. So I don't think we can read it quite as an allegory. But what I think we can read it as is, I've just said, holding up a mirror... And saying, look, imagine if you who were there, imagine if we who are here got what Jesus was saying. Imagine a scenario where you invite people like yourself. And they turn you down. They insult you. By saying, well, yeah, I've got a new field, got a new donkey, just got married, can't make it. They're basically saying, I've got other stuff to do that's more important. Imagine that that was you, Jesus is is saying. Imagine. 
Well, of course you'd be offended. And actually, you see that. In uh, verse 21, the owner of the house became angry. But Jesus is saying, just imagine then, you're angry, understandably, you've been put out. Your nose is out of joint. But then you think about what I've just said. And so you say, go out into the street and invite in all those that I've just said. Go into the streets, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And so we see the master doing that. And then the the servant comes back and says, yeah, but there's more room, there's more food. Well, go out again, go a bit further, bring in a few more people. Until the house is full. And you'll show a change of heart. You'll demonstrate something of what I'm trying to say to you. And verse 24 helps us in this, I think. Because in verse 24, there's a little word that in in translation in English isn't very helpful to us. The word you, I tell you, it says at the beginning of verse 24. In lots of languages, forgive the lesson for a moment, in lots of languages, there are more than one word for you. In French... There is tu and vous. Tu is to address one person. Vous would be introducing, uh, speaking to a whole lot of people. Same in German, du and sie. Du would be speaking to one person. Sie would be speaking to lots of people. In English, we just got you. Just got you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So thou would be one and ye would be many. What we have lost. Thank you, Malcolm. That's really helpful, actually. But we have lost that, haven't we? We we just have you now. But here, up until this point in this passage, the account has been between the servant and the master, and the master has been addressing the servant. But then, bizarrely, in verse 24, he says, I tell you, plural, The word you there is plural. It's addressing more than one person. You get the sense that it's actually addressing not just the person in the story, but those that are listening. And say, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And by association, I think we can also hear you being addressed to us. Saying, if you reject what I'm saying, if you don't get it like the servant is doing here, then you'll miss out. You will miss out. You'll miss out, A, because there won't be room, and B, because actually you wouldn't actually even want to sully yourself with those kinds of people that are now in the master's house. But if you get the master's heart, And you want to walk with those on the margins. You want to walk with whomsoever God calls you to walk with. Then you will be welcomed at the feast. (coughs) 
So I wonder where this kind of lands for us this morning. Nearly finished. Three things. One, one about each course, if you like. In the starter, we see that Christianity, that the kingdom of God is not about religion or respectability, but it's about release and rescue from sickness, from captivity, from sin. The main course calls for generosity. Generosity towards all without expectation for something in return. And especially to those you know jolly well can't pay back. Absolutely don't hold back because you know they can't pay back. Reminding us that we have received such generosity from God. And the dessert is kind of, well, what will you do? Will you go against the grain of culture? Will you be included in the address of verse 24 as one that's on the outside? Or will you, like the master in that dessert story, get it? And seek to show that generosity. See, it's an uncomfortable meal, I think, unless you allow Jesus to take centre stage. And then it becomes the most lavish, wonderful, freeing, generous meal that you could take part in. Because you're sharing in the heart of the King of Kings. As we come to communion today, I'd encourage you to just reflect on the sheer undeserved generosity of God as we remember him coming into Jerusalem, as we remember him serving this first communion meal with his disciples, as we remember him on Friday hanging on the cross in agony to die. And as we come next Sunday to celebrate his resurrection, let's remember the generosity of God. Let's remember that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he is with us here and he wants us to be rescued and to be part of the rescue of others. Because of his generosity towards us.